looking outside, I can't help but think uh, that was a nice winter we had in Houston. <laughs> I do pity all my people I know in Massachusetts, though. Um, bomb cyclone. That's... I take from my text this morning the fifth verse of the first chapter of the Gospel of Mark. And people from the whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem were going out to him and were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Please pray with me. May the words of my mouth, the meditations of all of our hearts, be acceptable in your sight, O God, our rock and our redeemer. Certain passages in the Bible we hear so many times that when we look closely at them, they feel weirdly familiar and alien simultaneously. It's like the face of someone you've seen many times, but for some reason, that time, that moment when you really look, you see the real person staring back at you and all their depth, their humanness. And you want to reach out and say, I see you. I look at this passage, the account of the baptism of Jesus, and I gloss over the words that I've read a hundred times. In fact, if anything, I close my eyes and I, I see Giotto's famous fresco of the baptism of Jesus. In my Western Civ class in high school, it was one of the images that we were forced to memorize. Yes, those things still stick with you all this time later. I remember my teacher saying how realistic and lifelike Giotto's fresco was at least compared to the paintings that preceded it, there is Jesus in his bleach-white skin, standing naked in the narrowest river Jordan you've ever seen. He's up to his waist in water, and John the Baptist has his hand over Jesus in the form of a blessing. The scene is serene, comfortable. God, represented as an old white man, leaning lovingly from heaven and releasing a dove that would soon alight on Jesus' head. Baptism beautiful moment in a person's life. Jesus' friends and family await him on the shore, ready to head off to a nice brunch once the service is over. It seems so common. Nice image, you think. And then you turn and look at the other frescoes. It's images like Giotto's that can prevent us from really seeing what's going on in this passage in Mark. For Mark's first readers, this passage, these words like a bomb dropped in the middle of their lives. They heard them and it shattered the complacency that they were used to. It's like a bucket of ice water dumped on your head. It's the Michael Wolf's fire and fury set in first century Palestine. But to really understand it, we have to wade into the details. The very first line of the gospel, which isn't actually a part of the lectionary reading, but it's just a few verses before. The very first line in the gospel is the beginning of the good tidings of Jesus the anointed. It seems innocuous enough to us until we realize that an announcement of good tidings was something that was heard for the birth or ascension of a new emperor in Rome. Jesus is named as the anointed one, the Messiah. In ancient Israel, kings were anointed. King David was an anointed one. While there's much debate among scholars about what, the, about what the Messiah would have meant to people in first century Palestine, it definitely had political implications. In other words, Mark launches his gospel not in the customary way of a biography that might list a genealogy or tell of a birth, but in the highly charged form of an announcement of a new Caesar, a new king, a new political force. 
and you have the image of John the Baptist. It may seem that John the Baptist is dressed like someone who might have lost his mind. He's clothed in camel's hair and eats locusts and honey. These details are not accidental. Oh, no. They are meant to elicit the imagery of Elijah. Elijah, if you remember your Bible well, was taken up into heaven. He never died. As a result, there was, a, there was this persistent belief that he would return someday. In the time of Jesus, many were waiting for it. The prophet Malachi includes this in his prophecies. The final thing that Malachi says is, Lo, I will send you the prophet Elijah before the great and terrible day of the Lord comes. You hear that? Elijah's going to come. Then all his business is going to start going. The day of the Lord is coming, a great day of judgment. This is Mark being straight up apocalyptic. New time is coming and it's starting now. You hear whispers from your neighbors, Elijah is here. As though they were too afraid to say it out loud. Grew up a good Jew in Palestine, you'd know exactly what this meant. And there's a location of all this baptizing. It happens in the wilderness. Not only does that signify a specific place, the dry and inhospitable area near the Jordan River, but it also speaks to the wilderness motif of the Old Testament. Where did we see the wilderness before? It was during the 40 years that Israel wandered in it. Out of the wilderness comes liberation. Out of the wilderness comes a new exodus. Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his path straight. Are you hearing this? Wilderness has another significance. It was not Jerusalem In the time of Jesus, the undisputed center of the faith was the temple in Jerusalem. It was presided over by the priestly class and had lots of power. The temple was also a place that had been greatly expanded by King Herod, the great accomplice of the Romans. It represented the historic faith, but also the abuse of power of the Jerusalem elite and their accommodations with Rome. The fact that this new thing, this new age, was being inaugurated in the wilderness is a big slap against the establishment. The new power, the new age was out there on the periphery, not in the center. It was even more of a challenge, a threat, because it was so popular. The text says, people from the whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem were going out to John the Baptist. People are pouring in from all places. They're seeking to be with God, and they're not doing it in Jerusalem. They're not going to the priests to make it happen. They're seeking out a new Elijah. We know that in truth, in historical fact, John the Baptist really was that popular because Josephus, a historian of the time period, writing some 30 years later, mentions John the Baptist and how big a movement he started. People were drawn to him, lots of people. This was a big deal, and Mark is just laying it out there. What are people doing? What's drawing folks out to John the Baptist? They're going there for a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. I think of repentance. I so often fall into the habit of imagining someone in a confessional booth listing off this week's past missteps. I wasn't nice to old lady Smith. I looked lustily at that woman on the street. But that's not what's going on here. Not at all. This is no confessional booth. John the Baptist is calling for repentance. The Greek word for repentance is metanoia, literally a change of heart. For Mark and for Jews at the time, it evoked the repentance we find in the Old Testament. The Hebrew word for repentance, teshuvah, literally means to turn or return. 
That is the essence of metanoia here for Mark. Mark is calling on a people to return to God, to make a life change, to alter their whole orientation. It's not about confessing one sin or another. It's about a a true change of heart. That's how the Gospel of Mark begins. It begins with a great challenge to the Romans and the ruling Jewish elites. Then it shifts to a personal call, a call for true repentance, an invitation to a new way of living, to be a part of the inbreaking of God that is beginning now. This new era that is just starting is not for the faint of heart. The heavens rip open when the Holy Spirit descends. This is a radical break from the past, a tearing up of the old, and a look towards a radically new future. And it starts with metanoia. So yeah, stand here and look at this text, and I try and wrap my head around what it means for us today. It's not something that easily translates. We're not steeped in the language of apocalyptic. We don't know what to do with it. This whole business of Elijah and the temple priests in Rome don't have clear analogies. In the face of the radicalness of the passage, I'm tempted to look at other frescoes and move on. But we can try. Try to make sense of what this means for us today. But trying sends us headlong into how radical this text really is. Mark is questioning the very systems of power upon which his society was structured. I'm not sure I'm ready for that. I like the idea of direct service, obviously. Go volunteer at the Houston Food Bank or work at the store at Memorial Assistance Ministries or tutor students in English. That is all fantastic service and very well and good. It doesn't even come close to what Mark is laying out in this text. We can think about trying to develop better policies that aid the poor. The Housing First initiative of the Obama administration is largely responsible for reducing the homeless population in Houston by two-thirds over the past five years. That is a true statement. Smart public policy works. We could have smart public public policy to deal with immigration, smart public policy to deal with energy and climate change, policies that help our economy expand and lift all boats, so to speak. All of that is great. Mark doesn't talk about good public policy, and that's where I struggle with it. Mark is talking about a radically new era, a radically new world. That's the essence of the apocalyptic language. This is a radical reorientation of the power systems of society. I benefit from those very same power systems, and I'm not sure I want an apocalyptic change. Give me good public policy and some people to help. Leave the radical change to someone else. You know what I mean? You recoil at this radical shift? Here's the hard part, the part I struggle with. Maybe, just maybe, that kind of radical change is actually what God wants, though. Maybe it's what we need. What, after all, could actually overturn centuries of ingrown racism in the United States? In spite of the highlighting of racial problems in the U.S. over the past several years, has anything really changed? Are we any less racist now as a society? If we want our children and grandchildren to grow up in a society that judges you, not by the color of your skin, but by the content of your character, we need a radical change. Ready for that? Take health care. We have the most expensive health care system in the world by far. Yet we have some of the worst health outcomes in the world. Yes, world-class medicine is available to many, especially here in Houston. In the wealthiest country in the world, millions do not have access to decent health care. Is a tweak to the Affordable Care Act 
even if that's politically possible enough to make that happen? With so many hands in the honeypot, with so many entrenched special interests, can anything less than a radical change bring about justice for all in our healthcare system? Look at our economic system. The neoliberal economic system that dominates countries in the developed world has brought untold wealth. We have far more now than our parents or grandparents did. But the entire system is predicated on ever-increasing consumption. We are told by every advertisement and reality TV show that we need more. We deserve more than we currently have. Globalization has given us fancy electronics at a fraction of the cost of what they used to be, but it's also led to huge disparities among the people of the world. It doesn't take much exploring to see the damage that that's done to our communities. Go to my home state of Massachusetts or neighboring Connecticut. Visit places like Lawrence, Fitchburg, Lynn, Fall River, Bridgeport, Waterbury, Danbury, New Haven. These cities used to be thriving manufacturing centers. Go see what they're like now. Go to places along the Mississippi River and you'll see poverty the likes of which you see in the developing world. Will one more public policy tweak fix that? Will renegotiating NAFTA change that? Will a new tax plan change that? Will one government program change that? Not on your life. If we're serious about this. We need, to, we need to start thinking about radical change. You can see why John the Baptist's call was so effective. You can see why the whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem came out to him. These people saw it. They saw the need for radical change. They wanted things to be different, and so they went out into the wilderness. Because that's where you have to go. You can't find radical change in the halls of power. You can't find it in Jerusalem or Rome. You can't find it in Washington, D.C. or New York. You need to go to the wilderness to hear John the Baptist. In 1932, Reinhold Niebuhr wrote what was probably his most famous book, Moral Man in an Immoral Society. In that groundbreaking book, written in the midst of the Great Depression, Niebuhr critiqued both Marxism and capitalism. Marxism offers the hope of a utopia in which workers themselves own the means of production. But Marxism leads to an Orwellian future, the kind that emerged in the 1930s in the Soviet Union. People in power still manipulate the system to make it work for them. Making the state all-powerful only leads to totalitarianism. Human sinfulness gets in the way of creating a utopian worker community. Niebuhr similarly critiqued capitalism. Capitalism, as was made painfully evident in the 19th century, squeezes workers as much as possible to reward profits to the owners of the means of production. Workers get just enough to get by, and the rest goes to shareholders. Good-hearted capitalists work to alleviate the worst effects of poverty, but it never goes far enough because the beneficiaries of the system will always put their own benefits above those of the masses. Individuals may be moral, according to Niebuhr, but the collective will of society will always reinforce the self-interest of those in power. According to Niebuhr, something else is needed. We want radical change. It won't come from people who say that markets solve everything, or from those who want to create a socialist utopia. Do you know what Niebuhr says we need? Take a guess. What will bring about radical change? What's the response of John the Baptist? Metanoia. Repentance. The only way to radical change is to insist on personal transformation. We need to confess our sins, confess how we benefit from unjust systems, and to resolve to put God first. We need metanoia. But boy, that is hard. This is where the critique falls firmly on the shoulders of good liberals. 
Last year, we watched the protests of the so-called water protectors, those who oppose the Dakota Access Pipeline. From all over the country, good liberals who wanted to do something about climate change focused on the construction of a pipeline from the Bakken oil shale producers to refineries in Houston and elsewhere. This pipeline, if you read some of the accounts online, was the manifestation of the devil, the evil oil industry raping the countryside and putting the water rights of Native Americans at risk. What frustrated me about these protests was that people were flying in airplanes fueled by oil to go protest the very system of oil production that allowed those flights to happen. What was lacking in the protests of so many of these people was metanoia, repentance. Everyone in the country benefits from cheap, readily available oil and natural gas. If you want to protest that system, you have to begin by naming how you benefit from that very system and repent. Don't just say, I'm sorry, but change your life. Make a commitment to change, to turn your way of living around. Commit to reducing your carbon footprint and paying a premium to get energy from clean sources. If you do that, if you make that commitment, that change, that repentance, then you can stand up and protest. Otherwise, you're not listening to John the Baptist. You're not really seeing how you're tied up within the issue. You can't protest globalization and then buy cheap electronics at Walmart without seeing the connection. You can't protest racism without acknowledging how, as a white person, you benefit from the racist society that gives you a leg up. If you want to change these issues, you need metanoia, repentance, first and foremost. It is not easy to turn a lens on your own actions, to confess your own complicity in the system, and then resolve to make a true life change. Metanoia is difficult. It's why so few people actually engage in the practice. It's so much easier to post something on Facebook and to complain about an unjust system. I do it all the time. Without seeing your own role and then commit to change. I'll be honest, I wrestle with this. I see the economic issues at play and yet I still love to shop on Amazon. That's why real societal change is so, is so elusive. It requires the hard work of repentance. But a new world is possible if you start by seeing the need for metanoia. One thing with the start of a new calendar year is that we see and read a lot about change. This time of year is the time to start your life on a new path. In that vein, I've seen several articles this past week on addiction recovery. Many people see the new year as a chance to begin again, and maybe just maybe to begin to get a handle on addiction. The most popular addiction recovery framework is the famous 12-step method pioneered by Alcoholics Anonymous. The 12-step program is the quintessential model of metanoia. People in addiction recovery know that they need something more than a simple New Year's resolution. They need a complete change of life, a new orientation. The first step in the 12-step program is acknowledging our powerlessness to change the system on our own or change things on our own. We are locked in an inter interwoven system. We can't just remove ourselves from the fossil fuel industry without removing ourselves from society. We can't escape benefiting from economic exploitation without secluding ourselves secluding ourselves in some cabin and growing our own food. We are indeed powerless to live outside the very systems we decry, and we should admit that. The next two steps call on us to turn our attention to God. We can't change the system on our own, but we can turn to God and reorient our lives in service to God's will. The next series of steps all involve naming and repenting of how we benefit from the systems we seek to change. How have we specifically benefited from racism? How have we benefited from our health care system as it now stands? Much of this process of repentance requires knowledge. We have to seek out and understand how the systems of society work. The next step involves us resolving to keep our focus on God. What can we do in our prayer life, our worship life, our everyday life to keep God and God's will at the center of things? This is a great challenge. 
if you want to have real change. And finally, we have to share our insights with others to talk about the benefits of metanoia, of repentance, to engage with others so that they can see how important, even crucial it is. Making the kind of change that you want to see and that they might often talk about. The past couple of years saw the death of many famous people. One person who died was Father, Father Daniel Berrigan. Berrigan was a priest in the Society of Jesus, or Jesuits. Berrigan made a name for himself by engaging in protests against the Vietnam War, against the proliferation of nuclear weapons, against the treatment of people with HIV and AIDS, among many other causes. He endured imprisonments and lived a life, a simple life, materially. At one point, he paraphrased, he paraphrased the Apostle Paul in Romans 8 to describe the source of his actions. Berrigan wrote, I can only tell you what I believe. I believe I cannot be saved by foreign policies. I cannot be saved by sexual revolution. I cannot be saved by gross national product. I cannot be saved by nuclear deterrence. I cannot be saved by aldermen, priests, artists, plumbers, city planners, social engineers, nor by the Vatican, nor by the World Buddhist Association, nor by Hitler, nor by Joan of Arc, nor by angels and archangels, nor by powers and dominations. I can be saved only by Jesus Christ. Berrigan exemplifies metanoia, repentance, someone who turned his life to God and let his actions flow from there, rather than from one group or social movement. Did he change the world on his own? No. But did he leave a lasting impact as a radical follower of Jesus? For sure. Daniel Berrigan turned himself over to God and became a part of the inbreaking of the kingdom of God. When I close my eyes, I can see that man in the Judean countryside 2,000 years ago. Day after day, he watches as things go wrong in his land. He laments the loss of the moral way. He sees injustice all around him. This world is not conforming to the kingdom of God that he has read about and been formed by at the synagogue. He knows there needs to be a radical change, something that's beyond his power alone. And one day, he hears the call of John the Baptist not really sure why, but that day, that call speaks to his soul, and he walks out the front door and down the dusty path to the wilderness. He's not expecting to change the world that day. He doesn't know what the future holds for him, but he's ready for a change. He knows that metanoia, repentance, is the most radical thing that he can do.